Welcome to the C3 Church Noosa podcast. Stay tuned for this week's message. Lock some things in people's lives. You know, you guys are phenomenal. There's no better place to be, can I tell you this, over maybe 20 years of being a believer and a follower of Jesus, doesn't matter how bad things get, if you can get yourself into the house of God, I'm telling you things are going to be okay. Things will work out. Just get yourself into the house of God. Just Even if you've got to drag yourself in, even if you've got to get someone to throw you in through those doors, and you're here, I want to encourage you, that's awesome. That's to be celebrated, amen. So this morning, we really have the opportunity to kickstart us into a new month and theme by where we're going to talk about life lessons that we can pull from and glean from in Proverbs. So really, the month of October, we're going to be talking around Proverbs. Proverbs is a phenomenal book. If you're not familiar with it, it's an Old Testament book. Um, and it's, it's just a book that is loaded full of life wisdom. It's 31 chapters to Proverbs. So really, for those of you that find it kind of hard to get, you know, reading through the Bible, let me tell you right now, 31 chapters, well, there's 31 days usually in a month. So set yourself a goal, one chapter a day. And I tell you now, if you will do that, if you will apply yourself to reading and studying that book, I believe that there's teaching and guidance in there that will transform your life, really, if you will open yourself up to it, amen? Because what you find as you read through the book of Proverbs is this this interwoven and interconnecting idea and theme about godly wisdom. And so if you, if you think about scholars, biblical scholars, you know, they classify the genre, if you want, of Proverbs as wisdom literature. And so this morning, what I want to really talk to you about is godly wisdom. You know, godly wisdom. Sally, I'm going to be kind to you and give you a break. You can, thank you so much. You're amazing. I don't want you to fade at the, fade at the, the keys while we're talking. Worship team, you're awesome this morning. And so I think really the first question we've got to ask this morning when we talk about wisdom is why do we need it? Not just to be smart or funny or clever. Why do we need godly wisdom? Why is there such a drive and a push and an exhortation in the life of a Christian to seek it out? And not just seek it out, but set everything you have in life to finding godly wisdom. And so Proverbs 4.4 says this, he said, He also taught me and said to me, let your heart retain my words Keep my commands and live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget nor turn, aw- turn away from the words of my mouth. And so the message, of, the, the message title for what I'm talking about today is get wisdom. And I, I believe at the very core of who we are as human beings, what we all have in common, though we're different, is this inner drive to be happy. Amen that we all have, when you strip away facade and pretense and performance and maybe insecurities, what you will find at the core of people is this desire and this drive to want contentment in life, to be happy. No one wakes up every day thinking, please God, stress me out, make me anxious, make sure it's a hard day, frustrate me. No, we all want ultimately in life to be happy. Now, we may not agree all on what that looks like for each and one of us, but That's what we all want. And as a Christian, we've got to understand that the way God has designed this world and the moral laws within it, the more that you and I are able to glorify Him, 
the easier it is for us to access happiness, and the happier we'll be. That's the very fabric of who we are. And so wisdom is a crucial key or part to the pursuit of happiness, because it is basically the practical knowledge that will equip you and I to lay hold of it. Amen? Proverbs 3.13 says this, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. And in Proverbs 24.13, it says, my son, eat honey because it is good, and the honeycomb which is sweet to your taste, so shall the knowledge of wisdom be to your soul. If you have found it, there is prospect, and your hope will not be cut off. In other words, by means of wisdom, you and I can make it into a hope-filled future. And so if nothing else you hear this morning, I want to exhort you, go out from this place and make a new determination within your life to find godly wisdom, to get wisdom on you. Proverbs 8.32 sums it up beautifully. Here wisdom is speaking and she says this in Proverbs, Now therefore, listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise. And do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. You see, our thirst for happiness really is insatiable. Our thirst for where we find happiness outside of God is limitless. People will find it anywhere they can, and if we're not wise enough to learn to seek it in God, can I promise you this, church, we will seek it in something else. We will seek it in something else. You know, for terrorists, it's blowing up buildings and shooting people. For athletes, it's making new world records. For scholars, it's releasing a new paper. For gamblers, maybe it's found in Vegas. Whatever it is, the sources and pool from where we draw from happiness outside of God can be endless. But the, here's the deal. That happiness we lay hold of is not eternal and it's not lasting. Outside of God, whether you want to believe it or not, that happiness does not satisfy deep down in who you are. And so at some point in the endeavors you pursue outside of God, you will find yourself feeling not quite satisfied, not quite full, not quite like things are just right. And we always want and wonder about what's next and what's more. And we feel a little bit un fulfilled. Eternal and true happiness that will satisfy your soul, satisfy your spirit, regardless of the ups and downs in life, that constant that is godly peace and godly happiness finds, or we are led to it, by godly wisdom. Godly wisdom, if you like, is the mechanism by which we are led into that kind of happiness. And so if we're going to start talking about what godly wisdom looks like, then we need to start at the beginning. And what, by the beginning, I mean this. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, godly wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of godly wisdom. And so if I want to begin to engage with and lay hold of this godly wisdom, if I want to get it on my life, then I really need to understand what it means to fear God, right? What does that mean? Because according to the, the Scripture, in fearing God, I'm positioning myself to receive wisdom, and if I start to get wisdom on my life, then I'm on my way to seeking true happiness. Amen? I'm, I'm, I'm going in the right direction. So I've, only, I've got to understand then that if God is the giver of godly wisdom, then I've got to get close to God. Make sense? If God gives His wisdom, I want to get close to God. Amen? 
And so I want you to stay with me this morning because with the time we got left, I want to kind of put on a teaching hat a little bit and I want to unpack what this means that you would understand that you and I have the ability to unlock doors in our life through which God can get His wisdom to us. That He can get access, if He can get access to your life, He'll get wisdom to you, amen? And so James 4.8 says this, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Everyone say that, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. So let me ask you this, who does the drawing first? We do. You and I do the drawing first. In other words, there is something you and I do that you and I can initiate that will literally cause the God who put the stars in the sky with His fingers and named them by name, who weighs the oceans in His hand, to draw near to us. That's crazy. That blows my mind. What James is saying in the Scripture is that it's you, not God. It's you that determines the level of intimacy you're going to have with God. God, the creator of the universe and the heavens, has put control in your hands. And he says, you determine what this relationship's going to look like. I'm not going to press on you, but we can go all the way, baby, if you will seek me. I find that phenomenal. James 4, 5 says this, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit, that's God's spirit, who dwells in us, yearns for us jealously. In other words, God yearns for us. That word yearns means to long for with intensity and consistency. In other words, God is longing for and yearning for you intensely and consistently. And I particularly love that word consistently because how many of you know, as wonderful as we are, sometimes we can get a little moody, right? You may love somebody, but who knows there's been mornings where it's like, don't touch me, get away from me, I don't want to know you, amen? God is not like that. God says, I yearn for you intensely and consistently. And when I think about God yearning for me, I think about what David's saying in Psalm 139 when he says, God, if I simply think about all the thoughts that you think towards me, they outnumber every grain of sand that is currently on this planet. Just think about that for a minute. Every beach, every desert, every golf course, it's a lot of sand, amen? Now, who knows this? Fishermen exaggerate, right? Fishermen are prone to exaggerate. Preachers sometimes exaggerate. God cannot exaggerate. Because what is exaggeration, really? Exaggeration is a little bit of a porcupine, a bit of a lie, stretching the truth. Who knows God cannot lie? So if God cannot lie and He does not exaggerate, when He says, Michelle or Amanda or Joe, the thoughts I think towards you are more numerous than every grain of sand on the planet, you've got to begin to understand how much God is thinking about you. How much God actually is yearning for relationship with you. And so my question is, if God yearns for us with this kind of intensity, why is it that not more people are walking in such an intensely uh, intimate relationship with God? And here's the deal. There has to be a foundation in our lives. You see, it doesn't matter how close God wants to get to you or how close you want to get to God, right? If this foundation is not set in your life, you will never get closeness with God. And that foundation I'm talking about can be found in Psalm 89.7. Says this, it says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. Now, look at that second part of the verse. It says, God is to be held in reverence by all those around him. You see, you will never find God in an atmosphere where he's not ultimately held 
with the utmost respect. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's interesting, Justin. Why are you saying that now? Because here's the thing, and I want you to stay with me on this. In a tech-savvy, everything happens at warp speed generation, it's very easy for us to become self-confident and to rely on our abilities and resources, right? If we want something, if we want answers, if we want enlightenment, we can step out of our front door and we can pretty much get it instantaneously, right? We can get the latest and greatest download, the shiniest, the best thing, it's new, it's hip, most days it's probably worthy of a selfie. But what happens is in those pursuits in life, often God gets knocked off first place and we begin to give God maybe a place in our life, but He's not the place. And so we stop remembering and understanding that God is actually a sovereign God, that He's God Almighty, that He's Jehovah Jireh, He's the God that created this planet, created the universe, including you and I. And so God in His right is worthy of being revered, is worthy of being given all, but we so often can forget it. And here's the challenge, God conflicts with life because He doesn't act instantaneously most times. Who understands that? God doesn't just give us an answer like that, it's done. God doesn't speak to us in that high decibel, 3D surround sound like your TV. So there's a problem. There's a frustration there straight away. And when times are bad and we're going through stuff, who knows, then we cry out to God and we say, God, we need intimacy. We need you near me. God, come and be with me. God, I love you. The Alpha and Omega, how much I need you. But it's kind of like, imagine sitting across the table from a friend at dinner and you're trying to engage in conversation and the friend's kind of looking at the phone, having a bit of a yawn, maybe looking at what's down, scratching his leg, maybe trying to catch the attention of the person at the other table. You're not going to feel like really wanting to continue the conversation with them. It's going to be like, I'm sorry, what's going on? Or how about you turn up to your friend's house, best friend's house, knock on the door all excited, and they open it, and the response you get is, oh, it's you. Who knows, you're not really going to want to visit their friend for too much longer. Yet how often do we do that with God in church? How often do we do that with God in our prayer life? How often do we do that with God in our ministry time together or as a family or wherever it is you are? So to ask you to stay in worship for five minutes can seem like an imposition. To maybe pray for 10 minutes kind of feels a bit rude. Amen? We've got to get back to a place as the body of Christ church where we give God place that He deserves. And I want to talk to you really quickly about two stories to help you understand what I'm talking about this morning. And the first one we find in Leviticus 10, chapter 1, it says, Then Nadab and Abihu, who's glad you didn't live in the Old Testament time when names were getting dished out? <laughs> Nadab and Abihu, right? The sons of Aaron, each took their censer, put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord in the tabernacle, which he had not commanded them to do. Everyone say profane. What does that word profane mean? In this context, it means to treat what is sacred as common. It means to treat what is holy as ordinary. Webster's Dictionary gives a one-word definition of profane as this, irreverence. And so here's what we got. We got Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. Now, just get this in your mind for a second. Back in the time Leviticus was written, on the whole planet, there were only six people that were allowed access into the Holy of Holies, that were allowed access to God. Six people, Moses, Aaron, and his four sons, right? Who knows today, a bo any born-again believer has access into the throne room of God. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. That's on our life. It tore the veil. We now have access. But back then, six people, that was it, baby. That was all we had to go on. Six people getting access. And so what happens here 
is that Nahab and Abihu come into the presence of God with irreverence. They come in not honoring God, not treating what is holy as holy. They offer an incense that God had not asked them to and did not want to accept, but they had become complacent. And they said, well, God, this is it. Probably a busy part of my day. Now I've got to come in here and do the routine and do the religion. And so here it is. And they forgot who God was. They forgot to treat him and give him place. And so look what happens in the next verse. It says, so fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. Dead. Buried in the ground. Probably not even that. Just ashes. And they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, these are Moses' boys, burnt up by God in his own tabernacle. This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So what is God saying here? He's saying, guys, you cannot come into my presence except with reverential fear. If you want to draw close to me, then you've got to understand, not, I'm not just a, a heavenly father, but I'm God. I deserve to be held in a high place because of who I am, that I am God Almighty, that I'm Alpha and Omega, that I'm your creator, that I'm the beginning and end of all things. Now, you might be thinking, well, Justin, that's great, but it's really Old Testament. How does that apply to me? Well, I want to tell you another story really quickly in Acts chapter 5. Here we read of two characters, Ananias and Sapphira. Now, the context of the story is that the church had just been birthed. It was gaining a lot of momentum. The disciples were kind of heading it up, and Peter was at the front of the church doing his thing. And in Acts chapter 4, which kind of sets up Acts chapter 5, we have this guy by the name of Barnabas who comes from Cyprus, and he comes into the church. He's visiting, and he's a wealthy man, right? So he puts a massive offering down at the feet of Peter. He says, I want to bless you guys. This is for me to you. Now, at that time, you've got to understand the culture and vibe of the church was people were bringing things and giving them into the church. People were giving. And I want to say... Giving is something that we should celebrate, just like worship, just like preaching. It's a gift that people have on their lives to give, and so we should celebrate it. And Ananias and Sapphira, probably in that time, were one of the biggest givers in church, if not the biggest. So they were used to and enjoying getting the attention, being celebrated for what they would do. But now all of a sudden, here they find Barnabas comes along, and he puts this massive offering at the feet of Peter. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, hang on, not to be outdone by this, because we're, we're the givers, we're getting the attention, we're getting celebrated, it's all good, we love God, but this is our thing. They go and they sell their land, now they've got a lot of land, so let's say it's 10 million bucks worth of land, and they come back into the church, and they lay at Peter's feet, 4 million. The problem is, what they wanted to do in their heart was look like, before God and Peter, they had given everything. Now 4 mil is a big offering, so you can imagine at the time, people are like, wow, that's amazing, you guys, that's, oh. Well done, Jesus is glorified, amen, yep, this is it, this is everything, it was hard for us to do, but here it is. Now here's the thing, you will serve what you fear. If you fear God, and we'll talk about that in a minute, you will serve and obey Him in your life. If you fear people, and opinions, and appraisals, and standards, you will serve and obey people. What Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira had was this problem of wanting always the pleasure, and the praise, and the affirmation of people because of who they were and what they gave. And so trying to replicate that again, they gave four million and like, wow, look at this, baby. Bang, but guess what? Behind their back, they had six million. They hadn't declared. That was, that was ours, God, you can have the four, but let's pretend it's everything. The Bible goes on to say that Peter confronts him and says, guys, uh-uh, wrong. Why are you lying to God and lying to me? And bang, and an ass dropped down dead at his feet. Men come in, pick him up, take him outside, bury him. Three hours later, his wife Sapphira comes in, Tells Peter the same story. Ah, you lied. Bang, she dies. 
Men come in, pick her up, take her outside, bear an extra husband. And in the later chapter in Acts 5.11, it says that great fear came upon the church. What fear? The fear of the Lord. Are you with me this morning, church? So now the next question we've got to answer is really this. What is the fear of the Lord? What is the fear of the Lord that we talk about? Remember, I said at the beginning of this message, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Godly wisdom that we read about in Proverbs. So let me say this, and I want to say it loud and clear so that everyone gets it. We're all on the same page. The fear of the Lord is not being scared of God. How can you have an intimate personal relationship with someone you're scared of? You can't. And guess what? God doesn't want that. He wants an intimate personal relationship with you. You see, because a person who's scared of God has something to hide, right? Think about the book of Genesis really quickly. What did Adam do when he discovered that he sinned? He hid from God. He hid out. He didn't want to be seen by God. He was ashamed. He had something to hide. He'd done something wrong. He ran away. A person who fears God is scared to be away from God, is scared to do anything in life without Him. Amen? And so the first and foremost definition of the fear of the Lord, if, if you're writing it down, is this, to be terrified, absolutely terrified of being away from God, about making decisions as a mother, as a father, as a businessman, as a brother, as a son, as a daughter, on your own without God being involved in your life, facing storms in your life without Him, trying to carry the world on your shoulders without Him. The second definition of the fear of the Lord is this, to Honor, respect, revere, and stand in awe of Him more than anyone else or anything in this universe. When we do that, we will find ourselves loving what He loves, hating what He hates. We will find what's important to Him becomes important to us. What's not important to Him is not important to us, right? So when we fear God, we're more scared to be away from Him, and so we take on His heart. Those that fear the Lord, the Bible says, hate evil. Why? Because God hates evil. Amen. When we fear God, in essence, what it's saying is we learn to tremble at His Word. That tremble at His Word is a byproduct of fearing God. And what it means this, it means we will obey God instantly when He moves in our world. We will obey Him even when it doesn't make sense. Who's ever learned to obey God even though you're thinking, man, I don't get this, but all right, God, and we've stepped out. We'll obey Him even when it hurts. We'll obey Him even when we don't see the benefit. And we'll obey Him to completion. Amen. Psalm 25, 14 says, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. So can I ask you this? How many of us have secrets in our life? How many of you have secrets in your life? A show of hands. Wow. What do I do for the rest of you? Pray for lying? Because we can't do that right now. Who understands there's not just bad secrets, there's good secrets, right? There's good secrets in life. So who do you share your secrets with? A complete stranger or someone who you are intimately close with? Someone you're intimately close with. So get what? God is no different. He says, I share my secrets and my wisdom with those who I'm intimately close with. And guess what? Those who I'm intimately close with are those that fear me, that hold me in reverence, that understand who I am. And so just so you know, I'm not taking that, that scripture we just read out of context. The New Living Translation says this, friendship with the Lord is reserved for those who fear Him. And so what God is saying is this, I'm not everybody's friend. In fact, I'm not everybody's friend that necessarily goes to church. Hello. I'm not everybody's friend just because you have an I Love Jesus bumper sticker on your car. 
I choose to be friends. My friendship is reserved for those who fear me, for those who draw close to me. Because when you're close to me, I can share with you my secrets, and I'll share with you my wisdom. Amen. All right, Abraham. Abraham, I love Abraham. He's called a friend of God in the Bible. Abraham's life is probably one of the best lives that exemplify what it means, A, to fear God, and to build a close, intimate friendship with God. So I want to talk about him for a moment. Why is he called the friend of God? Well, here's the, here's the lowdown. One night, God comes to Abraham and says, hey, Abe. And he's like, yes, God, what do you want? He says, Abe, I want you to do something for me. I want you to take your son that you love, the most precious thing in your life, who you adore, who you've waited 25 years for. And I want to take him on a three-day journey up to a mountain, and I want you to kill him for me, full stop. I want you to kill him for me. No reason. Look, if you do that, then my covenant's going to be established with you. And through that line, Jesus, nothing. You see, you've got to understand, Abraham didn't have the book of Genesis. He didn't know how the story ended. In that moment, all he heard was, God, take your, Abe, take your son, whom you love, who I've given you after 25 years of painfully believing, and I want you to kill him for me, full stop. Now, what I love, my Bible says this, and I love it. It says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and readied himself for the journey. Early the next morning. Have you ever met people that it's like, well, brother, God has been dealing with me about something for seven months now. Why are you bragging about not fearing God in the decisions you need to make? Here is Abraham. The next morning, straight away, he settles his donkey, puts his son on a donkey, and off he goes on a three-day journey. Why three days? Because I believe God wanted him to think it over. You see, it's very easy in life on that first night when God's speaking to you in a booming voice to go, yeah, no, it's God. That's right. All right, I'm going to do what you say, God. But what happens two and a half days, two and a half days later in the journey when you haven't heard a peep from heaven and all you're seeing is a mountain that you've got to now go up, sacrifice your son on just because God said you need to do it and he didn't give you any reason at all. Amen. And so if you keep reading the story, we know that Abraham goes up the mountain, he takes, him son, he takes his son, he makes an altar, he binds up his son, puts him on the altar, he raises up the knife, and he's just about ready to thrust the knife to the chest of his son when an angel of the Lord intercepts him and says, Abraham, stop, stop, don't do anything else, stop, because now I know that you fear God. Now I know that you fear God. I want to ask you, how did the angel of the Lord know that Abraham feared God? Because he obeyed instantly. Because he obeyed even when it didn't make sense. Because he obeyed even when it was going to hurt. He obeyed because even when he didn't see the benefit for him. And he obeyed and was prepared to obey even to completion. And I want you to Get what I'm saying this morning. Some of you now know me as Justin Malarco, the preacher. You see, you've got to understand this is so significant. God has just revealed to Abraham a facet of his character. A facet of his character. Abraham stops what he's doing. He unties his son, takes him off the altar. He lifts his eyes, and there he sees a ram stuck in the thicket, struggling. And out of his spirit comes this declaration Jehovah Jireh, which means my God will provide. God had just shown Abraham a facet of his character that no one else had seen before in the Bible. God, my provider. Why did he do that? Because he considered Abraham a friend. And he said, Abraham, because you've obeyed me, I'm going to show you something about me no one else knows. I will provide for you if you will trust me. 
I will provide. And so as I said, some of you this morning, and I want you, this is, hopefully will help you get this, know me as Justin Malarco, the speaker. Some of you know me as Justin Malarco, the pastor. But there's a beautiful lady who usually sits front row with blue hairs and blonde eyes, the mother of my children, that knows me as Justin Malarco, husband. That knows me as Justin Malarco, father. That knows me as Justin Malarco, best friend. That knows me as Justin Malarco, lover. Now, can I say this? None of you will ever get to know me as Justin Malarco, lover. Don't all say amen at once. Woo! Why? Because Ange is the closest person in my life, and so I will share with her things that I will never, ever share with anyone else. Only she will get to know it. God had just revealed a facet of who he was to Abraham that no one else knew about him because he considered Abraham an intimate, close friend. Amen? Intimacy with God opens a door in your life to which God can get wisdom to you. But here's the thing, only you and I can determine how close we get to God. Only you and I can determine how close we get to God. So how do we receive that wisdom? Really quickly, there's five biblical principles, really practical, I want to share with you as we come to close. Say, I might get you up if I can. Five biblical principles. Remember I said God is the giver of wisdom. We've got to get close to Him, but how do we really receive that upon us? Number one, desire wisdom with all your might. Desire wisdom with all your might. Proverbs 4, 8 says, exalt her and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. You know, to em em exalt and embrace someone are signs of an intense desire and a love for that person. Wisdom must become valuable to us in life. We must be prepared to sell whatever it is at all costs if we are to lay hold of wisdom. We've got to be able to seek it. The Bible says more than silver and gold in our lives. We can't merely, as men and women, aim in the dark and hope that we're going to hit the mark. Hope that we're going to figure it out. Hope that it's all going to work out and we're just punching in the air and we're shooting at what ifs and maybes. No, the Bible says before you do anything else in life, seek wisdom. Seek wisdom for how you're going to raise your children. Seek wisdom for how you're going to live with your spouse. Seek wisdom about the hard decisions you have to make. Blessed is the husband, the wife, the father, mother, and daughter that enters into every day more hungry for wisdom than the day before. Biblical principle number two, really quickly, apply yourself to the Word of God. Apply yourself to the Word of God. Since wisdom is found in this, His Word, we must apply ourselves, stand on it, read it, study it to gain his wisdom from it. Psalm 97 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. That's his word. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This is not just about faithful, regular Bible reading. I want to encourage you. Start to find books in your life that are going to help support what the Bible is teaching you. Books on how to do life well, how to overcome temptation, how to raise your kids in a generation that's very hard to raise kids in. Go down to Kurong and Malulaba, spend some time walking around in there and just pick a book. Get it in your, I, I promise you, if you'll begin to do that discipline in your life, your heart will enlarge, your, your mind will stretch. You'll find yourself gaining wisdom. Now, I wanna share something with you because some of you are probably sitting there, I know, saying, Justin, that's good for you. I don't have time to be reading books. My life's pretty chockers. I'm 100 miles an hour. Well, let me share something with your pastor, share with me many years ago that literally changed my life and the way I 
viewed reading. This is it. A little bit of a practical wisdom for you. Just say you read approximately 250 words per minute, right? So you're going to stay with me on this. All you math mathematicians are going to love this, but stay with me. You read two, approximately 250 words per minute, which is about what the average person reads. And you determine that you're going to set aside 15 minutes a day. Just 15. That's all I'm asking from you. 15 minutes. One five. 15 minutes every day to read. Right? Something that's going to enrich you, that's going to add value to your understanding of God and His Word. In one year, 365 days, you would have read a total of 5,475 minutes. You're going, well, that's a bit nebulous. That's great. What does that mean? Multiply that by 250 words per minute, and you get 1,368,750 words per year you're reading. 15 minutes a day, right? Now, most books have between 300 and 400 words per page. So if we take 350 words per page, we divide it into that million figure I gave you on how many words you're reading. You basically get nearly 4,000 pages a year. What I'm trying to say is that this means 250 words a minute, 15 minutes a day. You would read on average 20 books a year. 15 minutes a day, on average 20 books a year. Can I tell you, if you would invest yourself in that, Rework the schedule. Have a look at maybe the first thing you do in the morning or maybe you're an evening person, 15 minutes a day to either get in the Word of God or get around a good book that's going to help you 20 books later at the end of the year. Can I tell you, you will have gained wisdom. You'll have gained insight into your world if you would do that. Third, really quickly, pray. We need to pray. Solomon considered the wisest man on earth wasn't born wise. He prayed and God responded. 1 Kings 3.11, it says, Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, Solomon, wisdom, and have not asked for long life for yourself, you haven't asked to be rich for yourself, you haven't asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your word. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you rise after you. The wisdom that leads to true and lasting happiness is not naturally inborn in us. It's something that God imparts to us when we pray and we ask. Number four, think frequently of your death. Now, another way to put that before you freak out is be eternally minded. The Bible says that our time here on earth is but a breath. It's but a vapor. In the span of eternity, it just comes and goes like dying grass on a field. And so I want to ask you this. What kind of life do you want to look back at your final day here on earth? Do you want to have a life that you know has been full of purpose, full of promise, where you've made a difference, where you've done what God's asked you to do, where you've answered the call He's had on your life, you've been obedient, or do you want to look back at a life that's been full of frustration, full of missed opportunities, full of regret? Finally, the last five. The very essential we must all do if we want to get wisdom in our life is we need to come to Jesus. Matthew 12, 42, Jesus speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says this, the queen of the south, Queen Sheba, will rise up in the judgment with his generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solid, Solomon, and indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus talking about himself. What I'm saying here is this, Solomon spoke God's wisdom, Jesus is the wisdom of God. Others have spoken truth, Jesus declares, I am the truth. Others have shown people a way. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Others have offered forgiveness. Jesus brought forgiveness through the brokenness as He hung on a cross and bled out for you and I. Therefore, in Him are all the treasures 
of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. I want us just to close our eyes for a minute in this place if we can. You know, the reality, whether you know it or not, is that we serve a God who desires with everything that He has, a God that yearns intensely for you and I to have a relationship with us, that He wants to draw near to us. He wants to enter into an intimate relationship. He wants to call you friend. He wants to reveal to you facets of His character that you've never known before. But you know, I just sensed in my spirit that maybe there's been a season or there's been times in your life where we've forgotten who He is. Maybe we've taken Him for granted in the pace and the frustration and the challenges that we face in life. And so God no longer has the place. He has maybe a place. And we almost feel like He's hidden Himself or He's pulled back or He's not sharing like He used to. He's not speaking into my life like He used to. Can I just tell you this morning, God is in this place. And He still yearns jealously to draw near to you. But He says, son and daughter, it's in your hands to come to me and I will draw near to you. So I don't want anyone looking around, but maybe right now you're saying, Justin, I feel like I've been away from God. And if I'm really honest with myself, I haven't given Him the reverence that He needs. I don't feel like I know Him. I know about Him. He's in my world, but I don't know Him like Abraham knew Him. And I need Him, and I need His advice, and I need His wisdom, and I need His counsel for whatever it is I'm going through right now. I desperately need wisdom on my life. That's you right now. No one's looking around. I'd love you just to make a declaration of faith this morning. Say, Justin, that's me. Can you pray with me? That God would open up the windows of my heart, that God would draw close again into my life and reveal to me who He is. I need Him in my life. If that's you right now, no one's looking around. Can you just put your hand up really quick and say, Justin, would you pray for me? Just really quickly, no one's looking around. Thank you, I see that hand. Anyone else right now? Just really quickly, Justin, would you pray for me? Thank you, I see your hand. I need God in my life. I feel like I've been away from Him. I've put him down where he should have been elevated. I've put him in the closet. I've put him last when he should have been first. And I want to make amends this morning and say, God, have first place in my life again. If that's you, really quickly, just raise your hand. I want to pray with you this morning. Thank you. Can I ask us all to stand this morning? Stay in that place. You know, maybe you've never really heard about this Jesus. Maybe this is a bit of a foreign concept or idea to you. And you feel like, you know what, I just need to reinstate and reassure that my relationship with Him is solid. Can I tell you now, God will never leave you nor forsake you. But you know, Justin, today I just need to do something. I need to engage back in. I need to step back into that. If that's you this morning, I'd love to pray with you up here in this time we have left and just stand with you and agree. That God's going to pour revelation back over your life. He's going to reveal Himself to you in a fresh, new way. He's going to give you wisdom for the season ahead. If that's you this morning, why don't you come, fr- come to the front? Pam, Jennifer, I'd love to pray with you as well. If you can, that would be wonderful. Why don't you come down to the front and let me pray with you? That would be wonderful. 
Thanks for listening to the C3 Church Noosa podcast. For more life-changing messages, visit us online at c3noosa.org. If you've been blessed by this message, please consider partnering with us financially to see the work of God continue flourishing in and through C3 Church Noosa. God bless.